Our text this morning is from Amos 9, 11 through 15. You can find this on page 771 in the Bibles placed on the chairs in front of you. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its branches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the trader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm thankful that everyone is here today. We haven't had to say move in in a little while, right? So that's good to hear. Um, uh, We are in Amos this morning. Amos is one of my favorite prophets uh, over the years, personally. uh, The book of Amos has been very challenging to me, and so I was excited to jump in this week uh, and learn. Um, As far as how this passage connects to us, um, what we're going to see from what we see from Amos as we read the entire book, we get this clear warning of the wrath of God. That's where it starts. Really clear uh, a de- depiction and description of what of what God will do against sin. Namely, He will pour out His wrath. But you also get, and especially in these verses that uh, Anna Grace just read, a clear description of God's loving, merciful action. So you have wrath and you have mercy. And I think if you mix those two things together, they're not contradictory. In fact, by looking at those two things, you get this full, beautiful picture of who God is. So as we're going to look at this morning, uh, this picture of who God is through Amos. Let me pray for us uh, briefly, and we'll jump right in to the text. Lord, thank you this day uh, for those who are here, those who are listening Online, I pray that you would remind us that your spirit is here already. There's nothing special we need to do to access that. No, you send it in your grace and in your mercy, and it is here to activate and to challenge our hearts. And I pray that that would be the case this morning. Help my words to not be a distraction, but I pray that your, your scriptures would shine forth and that you would tell us and teach us and challenge us and convict us with that which you desire to do those things with us this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's start in your favorite place, a little bit of background, okay? A little bit of history. Uh, So the son of Solomon's name was Rehoboam, and he was kind of an arrogant jerk, okay? That's just how it was. And so his father was was very wise. Uh, Rehoboam takes the throne of the entirety of the kingdom of Israel, and he makes some very bad, very arrogant decisions right off the bat, and that causes the kingdom to split in two. To split in two. The kingdom of, of David, the throne of David, takes the southern kingdom, Judah, and then another line, a new line of kings, takes over in Israel. Almost immediately, the, the king, the kingdom of Israel, turns to paganism. This is very practical, actually. Uh, because God has ordained one place to worship, Jerusalem, and that one place is in the southern kingdom, 
Okay? That the king sees if my people keep going back to Judah to worship, they may stay there. So he immediately shifts the focus to paganism. They also do some military conquest. They're fairly successful with that. Uh, the reason that we need to know that is they gathered great wealth in Israel in those early years before Amos came to prophesy. Uh, and, but I think a few years back, there was the one percenter situation where people were camping out on Wall Street. Um, this in Israel was truly a one percent situation. All of the wealth in Israel uh, was in a, a very small, specific group of people. Everyone else was subsistence living. They lived day to day trying to get the resources they needed. Um, and so what happens in this split is this great hatred between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom is developed. Here's why this is important. Amos comes to Israel, the northern kingdom. He is a, a shepherd, an owner of sheep from the southern kingdom to prophesy. So immediately, as soon as Amos shows up in Israel, there's tension. This is like maybe during the Civil War, somebody from the north coming down to prophesy in the south. Or a better example, someone who's a Clemson football fan coming to USC to prophesy. Do you see the issue? There's immediate tension. Would you listen if you're from USC? Probably not. John is saying no, absolutely not. But Amos, by the inspiration of God, is very clever. Amos is very clever. And so he doesn't just go for the jugular, if you will. What he does is he starts by prophesying in this spiral around Israel. So he starts by condemning all their enemies, the nations around them. He, he, he talks about Damascus and Gaza and Tyre, and he, he says how God will condemn them for their mistreatment of Israel. So this is going pretty well. Israel's like, okay, I'll listen a little bit. And then he really gets to it. He gets to Judah. Here's what he says about Judah. The kingdom from where he comes. Thus says the Lord, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So, here's the punishment for Judah, I will send fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Now, this is where anybody listening from Israel is really amening. They're like, yes, preach it, Amos, preach it. But that doesn't last long. Here's where, it, where, it come, where everything goes down, downhill. It happens. The very next verse, after condemning Judah, he moves on to the sins of Israel. Here's what he has to say. I'm reading from Amos 2, verses 6 and 8. He says the same thing. I will, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So you have three really different sins all mixed together going on. Let me detail them. What is Israel's sin according to Amos? First of all, mistreatment of the poor. Mistreatment of the poor. Amos became very important to me in my young adulthood. It's really the first time, I grew up a Christian, but it was the first time I read in the Bible God's deep deep love, deep care for the needy. It was the first time it ever really confronted me to my face early on in college. And so if you want to look at how God cares for the poor, you can read Amos and you can see it. In Amos 8, I almost preached on this passage. In Amos 8, he talks about price gouging and, and, and making the ephah great and the shekel small so he, they can cheat people out of what they have 
but what very little they have. You see here, they're selling people for sandals, and even in their idolatry, which we'll get to in a second, what are they doing? They're laying on garments taken in pledge, meaning, oh, you can't afford wheat? I'll take your garments. Or it says here, you drink the wine of those who have been fined. Oh, you can't afford it? We'll just take your wine. So the 1% in Israel is really putting their thumb down on the 99%. Now, that's not the only sin, but it is definitely taking place. The other sins mixed in with that, you have sexual sins. Here, they're back to this fertility cult. The Israelites really love that thing. And idolatry. You know, all these things are mixed together. This is the sin of Israel. And what are the consequences of the sin of Israel, the sin of Judah, the sin of all the nations around it? This is really, Amos is calling out the sin of the entire known world at this point. And so what are the consequences? Utter destruction. Every single one of the folks that he calls out in his prophecies are met with the fire of God. That's the consequence, fire. So, including Israel and Judah, what is the answer here? Sin will be punished. God's wrath will be poured out. There will be fire everywhere. So here's where we um, land and start is the wrath of God. Now, nobody, including me, is thinking goody-goody gumdrops, all right? Nobody's thinking that. You shouldn't think that. If you think that, you might be too reformed, okay? Wrath of God is not a fun topic. It's not a fun topic. It's not fun to talk about. It's not fun to think about. It should be terrifying and it should be sad. That's what the wrath of God should be for us because we are supposed to be the recipients of it. And so we talk about the wrath of God. Why do we have to talk about this, first of all? So hang in there. There will be, this whole sermon is not about the wrath of God. It starts there. But I read from a guy named David Helm this week. He said this, a wrath-free gospel is no gospel at all. So we have to talk about this. The, 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 the good news is found on the other side of bad news. So let's just get it over with. What is wrath? Wrath, in one way to describe it, is just desserts. Now, I might be a little slow or something, but I just learned this week that does not mean pie or cake. All right, so it's not just desserts, like the, the dessert you, you, you deserve, like a sweet. No, this word dessert actually is an older version of the word desert and dessert, and it means your deserved punishment. Your deserved punishment. So our wrath is our deserved punishment. God's wrath on sin is a deserved punishment. And what Amos is describing here in the Bible, in this book, is the wrath of God, the just deserts of humanity for their rebellion against God. So what happens? Wrath is awaiting anyone who is found in breach of God's covenant, either the covenant of works, which is, hey, I am God and you are not, or the covenant uh, that he gave Israel, follow my laws and you will be blessed. Everyone is in breach of the covenant. Everybody. This Reality carries into the New Testament. Romans 1 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we can't make wrath the old, grumpy, Old Testament God thing. No, wrath is something that is true even today. So God has not changed. His holiness, His justice require wrath. It's not him. We've talked about this several sermons ago. Wrath is not God flying off the handle out of control. No, wrath is, again, that deserved, measured punishment for the sins that humanity has committed. That's what Amos is talking about. What's the deserved punishment? Fire. But we get to Amos 9 through 11 through 15, and the outlook for God's people is very different. 
Very different. And that's where we get to this God of mercy. Amos 9, 11 through 15. The question that I asked myself this week, and I'm going to ask us too, is how can a God of wrath have mercy? How can a God that, that is rightfully pouring out fire on the sins of, of men, how can he even have mercy? So here's an explanation. First of all, mercy doesn't take place instead of wrath. So it's not as though God said, okay, I'm stopping wrath now, and I'm moving to mercy. That's not how that works. Mercy is not something that's a substitute for wrath. No, mercy happens when wrath is satisfied. Mercy happens when wrath is satisfied. Let's get right to the nugget here. What, what is, how, how can a God of wrath have mercy? How can God have mercy when sin is so great in all of us? Well, here it is. To bring mercy, for God to bring mercy in love, Jesus Christ faced our just deserts for us. Do you see? Wrath didn't go away. God didn't just suspend wrath. No, He poured it out on another who didn't deserve it. He did that in our place. And so, do every single one of us deserve the fiery wrath of God? Yes. Yes, we do. And the only way to escape it is to put faith in Jesus Christ who stands in front of you and takes the heat for you. That's it. That's how wrath and mercy work together. And so what happens? Amos 9, 11-15 is a prediction it's a prediction of the future, and he is detailing what this sacrifice of Jesus Christ will give the people of God. So let's take a look. What is the result of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ facing our just desserts? First of all, the booth of David. Verse 11, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen. This is another word for house. And repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. For those of you who are reading uh, with me or uh, together, we're doing the, the community Bible reading. You were in Jeremiah 33 recently, and this immediately reminded me of something Jeremiah said to Judah. Behold, the days are coming. This is from Jeremiah 33, 14 through 17. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David. He will execute justice and righteousness in the land. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Jeremiah and Amos both are talking about what I call the forever king. There is this king that will sit on the throne of David forever. Never ending. That person, that man is Jesus. Jesus is the forever king. Jesus was inaugurated and crowned forever, king of everything, through his life, his perfect life, that, that unjust death, that he stood in front of us and took the wrath, he took our just deserts, and by his resurrection and ascension, those things were his inauguration to the throne of everything forever. And so Jesus, now and forever, he's our fearsome warrior. Think about all the things that a king is. They provide security and protection. He's our just judge, our powerful overseer. He's our gatherer of sustenance. That's what a good king does. He takes care of his people. He secures his kingdom. Jesus accomplishes these things for us perfectly. He is the forever king. 
Well, that's the name, that's the person who will be, this person who sits on the throne as this rebuilt booth of David is brought about by God, but who will be his subjects? We go to verse 12, the very beginning. He's rebuilding the house of David that they may possess the remnant of Edom. This will be explained more next week. And all the nations who are called by my name. Listen, this kingdom over which Jesus reigns is a kingdom that is full of every type of person. Every type of person. In fact, what we can hear from this, this message that it's all the nations who are called by my name, that the the, the remnant of Edom is possessed by Jesus, it means that no person, no type of person, no kind of person, no person from any background or any kind of sin is barred from the kingdom. It cannot be broken. That, That accessibility is always open to all kinds of people. And praise the name that, that in God's kingdom, all kinds will be there. Praise the Lord. And so listen, here this morning, to be in the kingdom requires no special work, no special criteria, no special characteristic in you or from you to enter. Well, then how is it done? How can we get in? Listen, John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world, the whole world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that is exactly what it means when we get to the last part of verse 12. Look at this. He's going to rebuild the booth of David. He's going to call in the remnant of Edom, all those who are called by his name. And who is doing the work, declares the Lord, who does this? Who does this? So we are not called to do anything but give up our striving of trying to save ourselves. That is work. That is work. If I'm good enough, if I do this, if I do that, if I'm just this, if I give up this, listen, that is, that is earning your salvation. What we must do is, is let go and say, I can't do it. I must let Jesus, the forever King, do it for me. And so that is the work of mercy, church. That's the work of mercy. God doing it for us in love. That is mercy. God takes care of the wrath. God brings the mercy. He does these things in love by the cross of Christ and Jesus coming out of the grave. So we have the king on the throne. We know who his subjects are, all types of people. We know how it is accomplished by the Lord, by God, through Christ. And what kind of life will God's people have? We get to verses 13 and 14. Finally, what are the benefits, Ransom? Let's go there. Verses 13 and 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. So what we have here is this imagery of of a, a cycle of planting and harvesting. All right, planting and harvesting. Normally, and I suppose we're fairly familiar with it, you plant during a certain season that grows and grows and grows, and there's harvest season. There's kind of a dormant time in between until we plant again. Well, here, what's happening is there is so much to harvest, they can't even finish the harvest before it's time to plant again. 
So the person who's picking the wheat, the, treader, the, the planter's like, hey, I got to do this thing, man. He's like, hey, I still got wheat to pick. Chill, right? That's all right there. You can see it. And then the treader, he's, he's squashing the grapes. He's squashing as fast as he can. And they're like, hey, we got more grapes. And he's like, chill. That's what he's saying. This is happening. There's so much fruit. There's so much harvest that, the, that the, they can't keep up with one another. That is what is being promised here with the mountains dripping with sweet wine. This is an image of a restoration of the land that's not been seen since Eden. If you're familiar with the scriptures, Adam and Eve choose to go their own way. God says, if you simply do this, we will be together. And they say, yeah, no, but we're going to do our own thing. We're gonna, we want to be like you, God. And um, what happens at that point is God curses the ground. It's hard to do work. It's hard to harvest. It's hard to plant. But what's happening here in these verses is that's all undone. It's actually undone beyond our expectations, beyond what we saw in Eden. It's something that, that is so plentiful. The ground is no longer cursed. And so the question then is, okay, well, how long will it last and when will it happen? We go to verse 15. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. What Amos is saying here is that this thing that he describes, that this king sitting on the throne, this kingdom of people, these subjects serving the forever king, experiencing this great overwhelming harvest of, of blessing and benefit, it's going to last for eternity. You see here it says, uh, I will plant them in their land and they shall never be uprooted again. This will last for eternity. And so these blessings, these blessings are in eternity. So what we're dealing with here in Amos 9, 11 through 15 is this, um, tr this future, this future that will be, um, I can't read my own words, uh, this future that will last forever and be plentiful, but what we have now is this partial blessing from this. So let me talk about a challenge for us. I was thinking about this passage and thinking this is all great and good. We have the forever king. We have the kingdom. We have uh, the, the mountains dripping with sweet wine. It's going to last forever. I think the challenge for us is we are a very physically minded people. We're a physically minded people. We understand place and prosperity. We understand those things. We understand a, a land being given to us. We understand the harvest being plentiful. But we understand these things naturally in very temporal terms, very temporary terms. I, I was thinking, too, why has the prosperity gospel taken root so deeply in our world and in our culture? Because we think if we do, we get. We all think this a little bit. We think if I just read my Bible a certain way, then I'll get an extra special blessing from God. If I pray enough, then God will actually answer my prayers. If I, if I give enough money or if I do enough good deeds or if I do this or do that, we're going to get things here and now in the temporary. All of us have this in our hearts. It's true. I do. You do. We all have this do and get idea. And so when we read a passage like Amos 9, 11 through 15, what is our struggle? Our struggle is believing in a promise and hoping in a promise that isn't fulfilled yet. In a promise that's not physically tangible. A promise that's not going to be a, a, a physical, tangible benefit right now. So we have to be cautious about this. One author named Gary Smith 
uh, said this as I was reading this week, the marvelous description of restoration and prosperity are not hymns to success. Do you hear that? Amos is not saying, hey, listen, you're going to have a successful, pain-free life. No, these things are assurances that God will be faithful, that Yahweh will do it. That's the emphasis. We all struggle looking at verses 13 and 14 and saying, okay, but rather we should be looking at God declares the Lord who does this is the focus, the presence of God. And so it's not in Amos 9, 11 through 15 about what we get. It's about who God is. Do you hear that difference? I was immediately thinking about this idea about badly wanting this outpouring right now, and I immediately went to the prodigal brothers in Luke 15. What happens with the story? This is a parable that Jesus tells. And there's two brothers. They have a very rich father. It's not a true story. It's, it's, a, it's a story that has a moral to it. But the first and the younger brother says, you know what, Dad? I really just want my inheritance now. I don't want to bother to wait until you die. I just want my half now. So can we just get it over with? I want it. So what does the dad do? He gives him half of what he has. The son goes out and he, he literally blows it all. He goes, it, it, he goes poor. And then you have this other brother. And, and, and this other brother, what does he do? He wants the same exact thing as the younger one, but he's willing to put in the work to get it. You see, at the end of the story, he says to his dad in his many words, I've worked for this. He didn't work a bit. I want what's due to me. What do they both want? They want something tangible now. They want these physical things from their father. One says, give it to me now. The other one says, you better give it to me later. But in some sense, we are those brothers. That's the challenge for us. We think that way. Either, Lord, I want my blessing now or I better get it later. I'm putting in a lot of work with you. We want Amos 11, 9, 11 to 15 to be a payout. I want my sweet wine. I want the harvest that never ends. The question then becomes, well, what do we get out of it? It's hope and tangible things, but what is the real blessing for those brothers? Back to Luke 15. What is the real blessing for us? The real thing that they miss is that they have this Father who is presently loving them without condition. He's present, and He loves them without condition. Think about this. When the, the Son who has blown every cent that He was given is coming in, coming home in, in humiliation, the Father runs out to meet Him. He runs out. That's not something men in that day did. It was undignified, but he saw his son in an unconditional love. He went out and met him. But that's not the only sign of unconditional love. And later in the story, when he's throwing a party for the younger brother, the older brother is conspicuously missing from the party. And it says in the Scripture, he came out of the party to talk to the brother and convince him to come in. Twice the father is present with his boys. He expresses his love to them without condition two times. So as we come back to Amos 9, the only way for this passage to be true, there's a few conditions. Are you ready? For this passage to be true, it has to mean more than something merely physical or temporal for us as God's people. It can't just be, all right, God, pay up. What am I going to get? It's got to be more than that. It's also got to refer to a hope that reaches beyond immediate physical blessing. It has to be. For Amos 9 to be true, God's wrath has to have been poured out fully, already. 
It has to have been. For Amos 9 to be true, there has to be a king worthy of the forever throne. For it to be true, God had to do the work of our salvation all Himself. It has to be on Him, on His tab. And for Amos 9 to be true, the only way it can be true, is the only way it can be experienced is to be in the very presence of God. In the very presence of God. And these are the things that Jesus Christ has done for us. He's done them for us. Think about this. He moved blessing beyond the physical. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, it doesn't matter what you eat or drink. I'll provide those things. What really matters is your connection to God through me. That is real blessing. He moved his people beyond the boundaries of just Israel. Praise the Lord. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for that. Jesus took on himself the fiery wrath of God, and he bore it all for his people. Jesus has been placed in the forever throne, and he did all this when we were dead in our sins. He did it for us. And so what we can learn from Amos 9 is we can learn about what is our mountain of sweet wine? What is the treasure that we hope in? What is the real blessing for us, church? Here it is, that we have God in Christ, and he is our present Father that loves us without condition. That is our blessing. That is our sweet wine. That is the harvest that can't catch up. God, present, loving without condition, only in Jesus Christ. And so if we look at this, we look at Amos and his, his idea that it's the presence of God is true blessedness. To be with God is to be with Him through Jesus Christ. It means to be planted forever, as it says here. Never to be uprooted. It means to be lavished with wine and oil that never stops flowing. It means to have peace forever. It means to have a family that includes all nations, all types of people. And it means when we're with God to be nourished in the deepest areas of hunger and thirst in our very souls. Which brings us to the Lord's Supper. It brings us to the Lord's Supper. Listen, wrath is real. And salvation is real too. They're both real. They're both still active. They're both realities. And the difference between the two pivots on one thing. The difference between wrath and salvation pivot on faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. There's, there's no special work to do, no secret handshake to learn, no password. It's just Jesus. And so, according to Scripture, to deny Christ is to accept wrath. And to accept Christ is to escape wrath. That's what it means. That's, that's, the, that's the pivot point right there. And so this morning, what do we celebrate in the Lord's Supper? We celebrate the fact that Christ died for me, an awful sinner. I sin every day. I sin every day, every hour of every day. And Christ, while I was still a sinner, died for me. We celebrate that we cannot do anything to change the fact that we deserve wrath. We deserve it. And yet... God has done what is needed to be done to change that. And so what must we do? We must trust another, the only other, who could take my place, take our place, and do what we could not do 
ourselves. So that is faith. That's what faith is, is to stop the striving and flop on Jesus Christ. I can't do it. I cannot do it. Jesus, do it for me. Jesus, thank you for already doing it for me. And so this morning, what do we do? Because of that, we can come and be in the very presence of God and celebrate it. Come to the table. Eat with our Father. Isn't that a blessing? In this moment, we have a taste of the sweet flowing wine of the presence of God. So this morning, if you believe those things to be true, if you believe those things to be true and you've been baptized, you've made that public profession of faith, God says, come, my child. Come and participate. However, this morning, if you don't believe those things are true, or maybe you have a sin in your life that you just refuse to confess, the, the Scriptures make it clear that, that uh, you should choose to not participate. It would be unwise to do so. It's not really clear necessarily exactly what that means, but it makes a very clear and stern warning, and I would echo that this morning. If that is true of you, I would urge you not to participate. I'm going to pray over the elements with a prayer of blessing. I'm going to invite some elders forward to help distribute the elements. Please bow your heads and join me in prayer. Lord, we this morning have called upon you in our call to worship to be with us. We recognize that you are our only refuge. We then confess our sins, known and unknown. And I pray in this moment you would give us clarity. Clarity on two things. One, that we are worthy only in Christ. And that two, we are loved by a God who is present unconditionally. You love us. You love us and you nourish us. Thank you for this place where we can be unified as a people. Thank you for this place where we can pray and sing and preach in broken ways. And thank you, Lord, that we can come in this place and by the power of your Holy Spirit be nourished by the very presence of Jesus Christ. Thank you. We bless these elements. We say, please remind us of the gospel. Please remind us of your sacrifice, but also encourage us challenge us, convict us through this time of the Lord's Supper. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.